This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Into the preaching of God's Word, if you have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is where we will be this morning. Excuse me, I need to clear my throat. Now we're ready. So this morning is what I call a hole in our preaching calendar. We came off of Easter. I was gone a couple of weeks. Soon we will begin the book of Proverbs. But it wasn't quite time to begin that this Sunday for a couple of key reasons. And so I just had this one Sunday where I'm asking, what might God want us to hear together? And so when I ask that question, let me just kind of be blunt when this happens with you. Uh, I, I, I kind of hate having to do it this way. I much prefer, if, if I'm honest, to be in a series where I can go from one to the next. I can kind of just preach the next verse. I can preach the next passage. I can think in thought if I miss something, there's kind of a safety net for me. If I feel like I didn't hit that the way I wanted to, I could come back the next week. Just to kind of have one Sunday where I get one week to tackle one text with you feels just so much pressure. I don't like it. I don't actually really like it. I like to be in series through books where the next sermon's just the next passage. But here we are. I have this one Sunday. Here's the grace and the comfort. We believe that the whole Bible is the word of God. We believe it's all profitable for us. So I can't really go wrong. There's nothing I can open the Bible and read that will not be the word of God and good for us to hear. So preaching the way we preach, just kind of looking at the open Bible, laying it on our laps and saying as plainly as possible, this is God's word, this is what it means, so let's go and let's obey it. It kind of ensures we're going to have something good every Sunday. Still gathering around the word of God, still rightly dividing it, still going to ask God for strength to walk in obedience and going to believe that there's grace to be forgiven for weary sinners like us. So I'm feeling some pressure, but not too much in there's grace. Here's what I've decided to talk about this morning. This is going to be a mouthful, so I'm going to give it to you twice, actually. I want to talk about trusting God for the determination and the endurance to live resolutely Christian lives within a world that rarely makes that an easy choice. A lot of words, big mouthful, but every word of that is on purpose. So let me tell you again. I'm going to talk about trusting God for the determination and the endurance to live resolutely Christian lives within a world that rarely, if ever, makes that the easy choice. So catch your way of saying that is I want to talk about playing the long game. You can play the short game, which usually means your eyes are down, you have trouble seeing what's coming, so you're not set, you're not grounded, 
You'll be easily tossed back and forth. Or you can hear who God calls you and says you are in Christ. You can hear that he loves you. That You can hear that he's working within you and on you and for you. And you can let that ground you and be what steadies you so that you can lift your gaze. Look out with a future heavenward perspective and live with a vision of a bright future in Christ. You can play the short game with your eyes down or you can play the long game with your eyes up and on Christ. I want to talk about playing the long game. So this is the picture I have in my mind when I say this. 19 years ago, I ran a marathon. I'd sort of like a little applause for that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I know, I know. I know looking at me, you wouldn't think I'm a great athlete. I'm not. But you got to know two things about me. Uh, Number one, I don't like to run. Number two, in direct conflict with that and me running a marathon, when I decide I'm going to do something, I usually do it. And so I was was a senior in college. Some friends were going to run the Chicago Marathon. I didn't live here actually at this point. I, I I lived in southern Minnesota. I was going to school. And they asked me if I wanted to run, and I said, you know, sure. Having absolutely no idea what I was committing myself to. But I do things when I decide I'm going to do them. So I committed myself to it, and I did it. Uh, so just as an aside, this is why I thought, uh, sure, I'll do this. Uh, I, ju- about a week before the marathon, I turned 22 years old. I was in decent shape. I was young. I thought, how hard could a marathon be? I'm a young, decently in shape guy. (coughs) Turns out it was pretty hard. (laughs) I would say this. Being young and in shape got me through like the first eight miles. A marathon's 26.2 miles. I had over 18 miles to go that being young and in shape had nothing to do with. Uh, I trained a little bit. Not nearly enough, but some. Uh, my friend Thomas ran. He didn't train at all, and he had to be pushed across the finish line in a wheelchair. I'm not making that up. That, that literally happened. That's another story for another time, but that literally happened. Now, here, here's the thing. Despite all that, I actually did okay. Not great. Not, I didn't set any records, but I did okay. Could have been much, much worse. And I think I did all right because I followed the advice I got, and the, the best advice I got when I was going to run this marathon, actually wasn't about the training regimen, wasn't about technique. It was make a plan and stick to it. And so that's what I did. When you're running a long race like that, the best thing you can do is to run with your head up. And I mean that in a, in a number of ways. Let me, just, let me just tell you that. So first, it's easy to get tired. When you're running 26.2 miles, it's really easy to get tired. When you get tired and you're running, the first thing that happens is you let your head drop. You're only looking then a few feet in front of you. After that, things start to fall apart quickly. In a race, that means you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention to your time. You're not paying attention to your surroundings. You're only looking a couple feet in front of you. Now, big races like that, Chicago Marathon is one of the biggest races in the world, in fact. They're crowded especially the first few miles. Everybody is just jam-packed together. If 
your head's not up, you're not going to see where you're going, you'll waste all kinds of energy trying to find a way that works through this crowd. And you're going to go a lot farther than 26.2 miles because you're just going to weave, you're going to go serpentine all the way down the road. And then physically with your head up or your head down over those 26 miles, if you're only looking a few feet in front of you, here's what happens to you physically. When your head goes down, your shoulders tense up. Your neck stiffens and your stride shortens. All of those things happen when you run with your head down looking only a few feet in front of you. You're tense, you have a stiff neck, and you run with, uh, with, and you run with a shortened stride. So now you're using a lot more energy to run a lot slower. The antidote to all that is recognizing this is a long race. So you need to keep your head up. So what you do is you find a good line through the crowd and you run on it. You look at the clocks and you keep your pace. And then again, physically, keeping your eyes up relaxes your shoulders, keeps your neck loose, straightens your back so you can run nice and tall. It allows you to fall into your natural stride. So I really don't like running. I like it a little bit more now. Really don't like running. But there is a reason that two different authors in four different biblical books use running as their metaphor of choice for the Christian life. It works really, really well. So we lift our eyes up so we can see where we are, where we're going, as much as we're able, we plot our course so we can run our race. Keeping your eyes up, playing the long game. Now let me read how we do this according to Jesus, and then I'll break this section down. So if you've got your Bible, Matthew 7, starting at verse 13. I'm going to read it all the way through verse 27, and then I'll break that down. Matthew 7, starting, by verse, thir- starting at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And again, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And, a great, and great was the fall of it. This is teaching from Jesus. Comes to the end of probably what is mo- his most famous set of teachings. There's five in the Gospel of Matthew. This is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It starts at the beginning of uh, chapter 5 with what Christians call the Beatitudes. Literally, that means the beautiful attitudes. How members of the kingdom of God live. And so he talks about the character and the lifestyle, but most importantly, the heart of Christians. He says that what will impact the world is not judgmental religious hypocrisy, but genuine love for God and people that's reflected in humility and grace. In chapter 6 of Matthew and into chapter 7, just as then example after example of how those beatitudes, how those beautiful attitudes are worked out. And it's capped right before we began reading by, by what we often call the golden rule. Kind of whatever you wish other people would do to you, you do that to other people. And that's where we started reading then in verse 13. It's nearing the end of the sermon. So Jesus has given all these possible examples. And in 7, really starting at verse 13, he just makes it real. Getting practical. He, he grounds us. You, you could summarize this by saying we are not in the Sermon on the Mount talking about some abstract, fuzzy, glittery inner spirituality that has no place in the real world. What Jesus has been laying out is absolutely meant for life here, right now. The difference is, what Jesus has said is, is it's not of this world and it's not from this world. So the world often won't understand it. It's going to look different at times and it's going to put Christians at odds with what's happening around us. To be a Christian means that we're going to have to make choices. And the way to make those choices is to remember what we're looking at and what we're looking toward. So we need our head up. A future-oriented perspective. Eyes fixed on Jesus Christ on the throne in heaven. And recognizing that the kingdom that we're a part of is not of this world. And let's not kid ourselves to believe that that the way that we're going to make choices as Christians is going to be understandable by people who aren't living for the same things. We're going to look like strangers. We're going to look odd. And Jesus says it not only can be that way, it has to be. So the Sermon on the Mount is about it has to be. And you see how stark the differences are here as Jesus lays out a bunch of what I'll just call twos. There are pairs that Jesus uses to compare life lived toward the kingdom of God and life looking down at this world, just kind of right in front of us. So there are four pairs, four twos, that I'm going to work through pretty quickly, just kind of for the sake of time. I'm not really going to give you many other pictures. I sort of 
wanted to start out with a longer story about running the race, because that's the picture I want in all of our minds as we work through these pairs. Heads up, eyes forward, looking at what we're living for. Remember what we're talking about, the trust. Here's, you trust for the determination and the endurance to live resolutely Christian lives within a world that rarely makes it the easy choice by looking up and looking toward him. Again, in other words, you play the long game the way you run a race, looking up and looking out. So there are four pairs here that we're going to work through. There are two ways, there are two teachers, there are two testimonies, and there are two foundations. Two ways, two teachers, two testimonies, two foundations. And you see the stark contrast that Jesus is drawing when he just says, you neither do this or you can do this. That's it. Those are the choices. So first, two ways. Verse 13 again. I'm not going to reread all this. I just want to reread verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate's narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, there are so many people who would say, Jesus, you can't talk like this. You, you can talk about Jesus. You talk about love. Jesus talked a lot about love. You can talk about humility. That's fine. But you can't walk around saying that most people are on the quick path to destruction. That's not PC. That's not cool. People talk all the time. You can't talk about how people are going to their destruction. Okay, a couple of responses to that. Number one, this is what Jesus said, and we don't do anyone any favors by pretending he didn't say things like this. If we just omit all the hard parts of Jesus, we're not doing anybody any good. And that leads me to number two. I think people want the real Jesus. Honestly, I think they do. I, not, not just Christians. People want the real Jesus. Now, not everybody's going to accept him. He says that here. Jesus is, is clear that not everybody's going to accept him. But what doesn't help anyone is laying down, laying out some kind of marshmallowy Jesus who never had anything hard to say to anybody. The way we serve people best is by saying, here's who Jesus is. He invites everybody to come to him. But you've got to know what you're coming to. We don't do anybody any good if we just submit the hard stuff. And so here it is. This is what Jesus said. He calls this the narrow gate because the parameters are clearly laid out. You can't read the Bible and you can't hear the words of Jesus and think you'll make your own way. For some of us, we have the opposite fear. It's not that we'll make our own way. We're afraid if the gate's too narrow, are we going to be able to fit through it at all? The good news for both of us, those trying to make our own way and those wondering if we can possibly fit because the narrow way, we, we see how narrow the way is. 
The good news is you aren't asked to make it on your own. And you will fit if you follow Jesus because he's already gone before you through the narrow gate. He said he's the way, the truth, and the life. So in a way, Jesus is both the gate and he's the one who leads us through it. Now you can read the Sermon on the Mount and and, and think that this is high spirituality. But what runs under the whole thing even talking about narrow gates and wide paths to destruction is the gentleness of Jesus. The way of Jesus is called hard here, and the metaphor is that it's a tight fit. But earlier in the sermon, Jesus says that his way is easy and the burden of following him is light. So how do you synthesize those two ideas? Well, you do it like this. You say, well, there is a narrow way that must be walked. But it's not your ability to walk it that you need to depend on. You trust in Jesus, and he's already walked the narrow path. He's already gone through the gate. And he's on the other side, and he's calling you to walk after him, promising that when you do, he'll make the way for you. If you follow Jesus, it's called taking his yoke, he calls it earlier in the sermon, taking that way upon yourself. All you need to do is walk with him and he will show you the way. He will take you through the narrow gate. Nobody in history walked a lonelier, darker, narrower path than Jesus did on his way to the cross. But because he did that, his reward now is he gets to swing wide the door to that narrow gate and bring anybody through who comes after him. You can walk through the narrow gate. If you're trying to make your own way, stop that and follow Jesus. He knows the way. If you're wondering if you can possibly fit trust that in Christ that gate is so wide that literally millions of people are going to be able to walk through. Jesus is there for you. He will lead you. Second two. There are two teachers. There will be some who look good from the outside, but inwardly their desire and their goal is to tear you away from Jesus. So how do you know the good teachers from the bad? Jesus says it's actually pretty simple. Just look behind them. Is their teaching producing good fruit? Are their followers growing in the image and the likeness of Jesus? So I want to I do my best to, to give you a little bit of a warning here. Uh, the implication of what Jesus is saying is that at first, it's not always easy to tell good teaching from bad teaching. If it was, he wouldn't have to say, well, look behind them at the fruit. Fruit, Fruit's what comes afterwards. If it was easy to spot false and and harmful teaching on the front end, all Jesus would have had to say was, well, well, it's obvious. Don't listen to the heretics and the liars. We know that. That's the easy part. 
But you can't always do that because the teachers he has in mind sometimes look good at the start. They look good from the outside. But inside, what they're producing is harming people. So unfortunately, the further implication here is is while some of us will be able to pick up on the false, unbiblical, ungodly teaching right away, others of us are are only going to recognize that after we've heard it and even witnessed some of what it's working out. And so the best thing I can do here is just lay out three simple questions to ask and then find it, and then kind of correspondingly three progressions of the heart to watch out for if you're responding to the wrong kind of teaching. So three questions, three kind of checks on your heart. And, and listen, I, I wish... Everything in me wishes that I could just say, simply listen to Bible teachers and pastors because they won't steer you wrong. But we've just all seen too much over the last few years to know, to know that that can't go sideways. <clears throat> just because somebody reads a Bible verse at the beginning of what they say doesn't mean they're the right kind of teacher. So here are three questions and within that kind of three ways to, to look at your heart, even, even when it, you think you might be listening to Bible teaching. Question one, is this softening my heart, making it more tender towards God? In other words, will this make you quicker to see and confess your sin freer to live in the grace of God? And does this actually make it easier for you to see the big log in your own eye and increase in humility? The fruit of good Bible teaching is men and women growing in humility before God and other people. If it's making you harder and more self-righteous, turn and run. Hard in the other direction. Question two. Is this promoting the fruit of the Spirit in your own sanctification? So are you more joyful because of this? Are you more patient, gentler, kinder? Is this giving you more self-control? Here's a big one. Are you becoming more encouraging of other people through it, or is the opposite happening? Are you just beginning to loathe other people? Number three, is this stirring your affection for worship? Does what you're hearing make you want to praise God? To come together and sing gather with other Christians to bless one another, to serve people outside of your group. So there is joy in the presence of God. Where he is, you will feel gladness. If there's an absence of peace, and what you're hearing isn't producing in you worship, but it's getting you all worked up, kind of angry, I would have serious doubts that it's from the Lord. Now, I could, I could do so many more of these. 
And, and I could have taken this in, in other directions. Uh, so let me just kind of tell you why I took it this way. This is a pastoral concern. I'm concerned with Christians hearing Bible teaching, receiving news. This kind of gets into the survey we're taking, being influenced by social media that is not making them more gentle and joyful in God. It's making them angrier. And the hearts aren't toward and their hearts don't break for people in the lost around them. Their hearts are bent toward the downfall of people around them. I'm not saying that the church isn't to be a beacon of truth. In fact, the Apostle Paul says we're to be a buttress for it, stronghold for it. But you can stand for truth and even be willing to fight for it, which I am. But you can do that without being eager for a fight and without relishing one. Quarreling, conflict, and fighting are not fruits of the Spirit. In fact, elders in the church, those who are called to lead us and spiritually shepherd us, are given certain qualifications. Men in the church are told to aspire to the office of elder. We're all told to esteem the elders among us. And one of the qualifications for eldership is not being quarrelsome. We literally say all the men should aspire not to be quarrelsome and all of us should esteem people who we don't think are argumentative. It's not a ministry to go around and argue with people. If we bite and devour one another, we will be consumed by one another. So many Christians right now seem to be looking for fights. But that doesn't grieve them or sadden them. It seems to kind of excite them. And church, I worry about that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's, there's nothing exciting about the destruction of those on the easy path going toward the wide gate. Yes, it's true. But that should break our hearts, not make us happy. Two more quick twos. I'm going to do these really fast. Third two is two testimonies. Jesus says some people will come and, and call him Lord, but their testimony won't be based on nearness to him or even their, their relationship with him. They, they'll say, well, didn't we do things? And their, their testimony won't be, I was tight to you. I pressed into you. I, I was drawn to you. It will be, well, well, didn't I do a lot for you? Well, didn't I, didn't I go out there and, and, and do stuff in your name? What Jesus wants first and what shows him and other people that we're truly his is when we've given him our heart, not just given him a couple of hours or some of our money, but when we've given him our heart, those things will follow. There's a story of, of two sisters in the Bible who owes to Jesus in their home. 
Uh, One was really busy doing a lot of things, but didn't pay much attention to Jesus. The other sat with him and, and enjoyed his presence. Followers of Jesus aren't those who fill up their calendar with Jesus-adjacent activities. They're men and women and and children who enjoy Jesus. There's a big difference. Being Jesus and Jason and enjoying Jesus are not the same thing. So what's your testimony? Last two. Building your life on Jesus... And the word of God is like setting your house in a strong, deep foundation. So as you notice, there's something common about these two things. One is a home built on the rock. One's a home built on the sand. For both the homes, the storm comes. The rains come, the floods come, the winds come. The difference isn't that the storm doesn't come. The Bible never promises that Christian life will be any easier In fact, it actually says the Christian life will be harder than not living for Christ. The difference is when you build your life on Christ and on the word of God, that will be an anchor for you when storms inevitably do come. The other thing the the foundation metaphor works really well for is you can't see how good a home's foundation is. From the surface, when you look at the house, they look the same. I can't always tell, and I try to, and our elders do as we pray for you, if your head is down and you're just kind of looking around at the world or if your eyes are up and they're looking on Jesus, sometimes it actually looks a little too similar to us. There's a lot of things, a lot of ways that only you will know what your foundation is really being built like. But Jesus is clear here, there's two ways to build it. You either build it deep into him so that inevitably when the storms come, you're ready. Or your foundation is shallow and when the storms come, you're vulnerable. The way that you build a strong foundations is time with God and his word, surrounding yourselves with other Christians, in knowing that even when difficulty comes, that God is not against you. He is for you. God has given you everything you need to be near to him in Christ, and he begs you to do this. Jesus, the, the implication here is Jesus is begging you. He's giving you all of this. Say, this is how you build your life deep. This is how the roots grow. This is how the, we dig down deep. And this is, I think, we're we're playing the long game is seen the most clearly. You build the foundation first. It takes time. If you're going to dig deep, that's tough work. It's easy to slap two by fours together on top of a foundation. It's hard to dig a big hole in the ground and pour concrete. Pick your eyes up, play the long game. In a way, this was sort of a preview, kind of a plea to say, hey, come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to start Proverbs and do that this summer because Proverbs are all about not only the long game, but deep foundations. And they all point to Jesus. The whole Bible does. So I'm begging you this morning, pick your eyes up. You have a bright future in Christ. Keep your eyes there. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I thank you for Christ who is all, that he walked the narrow path so that he could swing wide that gate. May all those who hear my voice dig their foundations deep into him. We know that storms are going to come. I pray that when they do, we stand up under them, not because we're such great builders, but because you're such a great Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.